Oh, good morning. That was a good time. After those baptisms, I don't even know if I even need to preach, but we're all here. Someone just clap. Don't clap about that. I'm, I'm preaching. I'm preaching. Oh. Well, good morning. And uh, before we get started, I want to just mention a couple things. Um, Joe and Allie Lemonager, are you in the room here? Okay, you're not. I was told that Joe and Allie were going to be here when I announced that the first service they weren't, so I assumed they were going to be here the second service, but they're not. So I don't know uh, where Joe and Allie are, but Joe and Allie Lemonager are missionaries uh, from Germany, and uh, if you happen to see them in the coming weeks, uh, make sure you say hi to them. So I, I, don't know, I heard they were coming back on sabbatical, but uh, they're not. Okay, so forget that one. Uh, don't forget your love for them, but do for, uh, forget trying to find them this morning. Uh, secondly, uh, finances. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that we were transitioning to a new electronic giving platform. And um, so that is now in effect. And we sent an email on Friday. And the email had the details about how you would switch over to the new platform. So if, particularly important if you have set up automatic giving, uh, which we're really grateful for. It kind of keeps a steady flow of income. It's helpful for us with the automatic giving. But if you did set it up with the old system, you need to transfer it over to the new system. We can't do that for you, so you need to do that. So let me encourage you uh, to do that. You can read the email from Friday. You can go to our website and just go to the Calvary Give page, and there's information there. Or you can just reach out to Pastor Johnny, and he can help you uh, navigate how to transition. But it's pretty simple. You should be able to follow the directions without a problem. Also want to just uh, mention, if you're looking in our bulletin, you see we have kind of a, a running tally of where our budget numbers are, and we're currently $146,000 uh, deficit uh, giving to budget. And so that's not crazy unusual at this time of the year, but we do want to draw attention to it and uh, encourage all of us to be mindful about how the Lord might have us participate in closing that gap. It's a real number. And uh, um, so if you are not contributing uh, to uh, giving at Calvary, uh, maybe this is a good time as we transition to a new giving platform. This is a chance for you to engage with that. We'd love to have your participation uh, in that. All right. Last week, uh, Pastor Joel took us through chapters, uh, chapter to the end of chapter four, and he mentioned rightly that chapters three and four are very thick; they're very meaty chapters. And as we moved through these chapters over the last number of weeks, I kept thinking that we're leaving some great sermons behind. And so I would be working through the text, what to preach, and I'd be like, oh, that would be a great sermon, and that would have been a great sermon. And in particular, there are three sermons from chapters 3 and 4 that we didn't preach that I think are too good to skip past. So earlier last week, as I was praying about how to move forward for today's sermon, I decided that we're going to move back. Before we move on to chapter 5, we're going to move back and pick up the sermons, those three sermons, before we move on. We're going to preach all three of those sermons this morning. But don't worry, because this is not going to be like one big sermon stake. This is going to be like three little succulent sermon medallions, if you can think of it like that, right? So each, each of these three sermons that I would have given a whole sermon to, I'm going to just break them down into some bite-sized portions here. And I'm trusting and praying that the Lord has a word 
for us here with one or two or maybe all three of these mini sermons. Now, normally we would stand together and we read the passage before the sermon starts. We would have already read our text. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to have a stand in a moment. We're going to read the text for our mini sermon, the first one. I'm going to preach that one. And then I'll have you stand for the second one, read the text, preach that one, and on through all three sermons. You get the idea. So our first little sermon medallion is from chapter 3, 12 through 16. So let me invite you to stand up. Find chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, 12 through 16. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew rack in front of you there. 965 is the page number, verses 12 through 16. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, now I'm not going to, I'm going to assume that you've been around for the past number of weeks. I know some of you haven't, but I'm not going to take a lot of time to go back into all the context of these passages. So we're going to kind of let some of that stand as what's been said before. But just very briefly, in the context of this passage, Paul is giving us his interpretation of the Moses story from Exodus chapter 34, where Moses' face was shining with the glory of God. And according to Paul, Moses' face shone with the fading glory of God as a prefiguring of the coming glory of Messiah that would shine in the face of Jesus. Or we could say it like this, the glory of God that emanated from Moses' face prophesied or pointed towards the glory of God that would one day shine on Jesus' face. And in my previous sermons on this passage, I pointed out that Moses veiled his face because he didn't want the Israelites to become preoccupied with his fading earthly glory. He wanted them to set their hearts on the coming future glory of Jesus. That's Paul's basic point from chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. But we skip past a second reason for why Moses veiled his face, and I want to come back to that now as the focus of this first sermon medallion. We see the second reason in verse 14. Paul tells us that Moses veiled his face because the minds of the Israelites were hardened. Now, Paul isn't saying that Moses' veil, Moses's veil hardened the minds of the Israelites. He's saying that Moses veiled his face because the minds of the Israelites were hardened. For all the glory that Moses had on his face, it wasn't doing the Israelites any real good. Their hearts were hardened, and the glory of God on Moses' face wasn't leading them to the glory of Messiah. So Moses veiled his face, and he hid the glory of God. Now think about this idea of hardening one's heart. What does it mean when we say that our heart is hardened towards something? To harden our hearts towards people or things is to keep them at a distance. 
to keep them at arm's length, emotionally or relationally. To harden our heart is to refuse to let ourselves be touched or influenced by particular people or things. Think about the opposite of hardening your heart, softening your heart. When we soften our heart towards someone, we are opening ourselves up relationally and emotionally to them. We're inviting them in. We're letting ourselves be touched and influenced. Hardening is the opposite of that. Hardening is keeping people and things out. Now, why do we harden our hearts towards certain people or things? Isn't it because we're afraid of what those people or things will do to us if we let them in? Don't we harden our hearts because we're afraid to let ourselves be touched or influenced by certain people or things? Isn't it because with certain people or things, for some reason, we just don't feel safe in some way? If I soften my heart to you, I'm making myself vulnerable to you. But then what will you do with my heart if I let you into it? If I doubt that you're safe, I won't soften my heart to you. I will harden my heart towards you. If I soften my heart to the poor, like God tells me that I should do in Deuteronomy 15, I'm making myself vulnerable to the poor. But what will it cost me if I let the poor touch and influence me? Certainly there will be financial or emotional or relational repercussions if I soften my heart to the poor. And if I'm afraid of those repercussions, then I don't soften my heart to the poor. I harden my heart. And the point I want to make here is that we harden our hearts as a means of self-protection. The Israelites, Paul is telling us in verse 14, had hardened their hearts to the glory of God. They liked to gaze at it, and they found it fascinating, but they wanted it to stay over there on Moses' face. They didn't want it to penetrate into their hearts. They didn't want to trust God to mess with their hearts and to change them. And because they had self-protectively hardened their hearts to the glory of God, they couldn't see Moses' glory for what it truly was. And they were veiled from seeing Moses' glory. And in verses 14 through 15, Paul says that the same problem that had existed in Moses' day still existed in Paul's day all those years later in the first century. The same veil that had lain over Moses' face now lay over the hearts of Paul's Jewish kinsmen whenever Moses' law was read in the synagogues. The glory of Jesus that was there to be seen all throughout the law of Moses was also there to be seen. The glory that was there to be seen in the face of Moses was also there to be seen in the law of Moses. Jesus who was the ultimate glory of the law, could be seen all throughout. Jesus was there as the word of God on the first day of creation. He was there 
as the Sabbath rest of God on the last day of creation. He was there as the promised son of Eve and the promised son of Abraham. He was there as Isaac on Mount Moriah, the only begotten son offered up in sacrifice by his father. He was there as the Passover lamb to free the children of Israel from the captivity of Pharaoh and to deliver them from the just wrath of God. He was there as manna from heaven and water from the rock. He was there as the serpent on the pole. He was there as King David, a man after God's own heart. He was there as Solomon, the builder of the temple. He was there as the prophet Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, who came back, as it were, from the dead and preached repentance to the nations. He was there as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He was there as the firstborn who makes atonement from Micah chapter 6. And he was there as the great and burning day of the Lord in Malachi 4, the last chapter of the Old Testament. But Paul's Jewish kinsman couldn't see Jesus in any of that. Their hearts were hardened, and so their eyes were veiled. And the same thing that happened in Moses' day with the glory of Jesus on Moses' shining face that happened in Paul's day with the reading of the law still happens in our day. All throughout this sermon series, we've been talking about seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We've been talking about the, the idea that Jesus isn't just an idea or a religion or a morality that Jesus is a living, breathing person who loves us and who wants to be in relationship with us, that he wants us to experience the love that he has for us, and he wants to experience the love that we have for him. The glory of God in the face of Jesus is woven all throughout the scriptures. It's woven all throughout the church. It's woven all throughout the world. But we can't see him for who he is if our hearts are closed in self-protection. If our hearts are hardened, if we are in self-protect mode, if we are afraid to let him in and to look us in the eye, all the glory of Jesus can be present to us, but the same veil will still lie over our hearts. Jesus will always be just outside, at a distance, and we won't be able to see him for who he really is. And maybe that's been you throughout this sermon series. You know intellectually about Jesus, and you hear words about Jesus. Maybe you even believe the doctrines about Jesus, but you don't know what it means to actually experience the living person of Jesus, to see him with the eyes of your heart. You're like a river rock sitting at the bottom of the river, all wet on the outside, just awash in Christianity, but dried up on the inside. Your heart is hardened up in self-protection, and you can't see past the veil that lies over the eyes of of your heart. But here's the thing. Maybe you want to. Maybe you want to. 
Maybe you watch the people around you singing in heartfelt praise and you'd like to feel what they're feeling and rejoice in the way they're rejoicing. Maybe you hear a man or the woman in the pew next to you, perhaps Craig Moore up in the balcony who I hear often on Sundays, mm-hmm, about the sermon. And you'd like to hear what they're hearing and have it resonate in your heart too. Maybe you hear the people around you talking about being loved and comforted by Jesus, and you'd like to experience the same comfort and love. But no matter how hard you squint and strain, you can't see past the veil that covers over the eyes of your heart. And if that's you, then I have good news for you. Because in verse 16, Paul tells us that when we turn to the Lord, the veil is taken away. We can't lift the veil and make ourselves see Jesus. But he can lift the veil and show us his glory if we turn to him with open hearts. So touched listening to Alex share his testimony this morning and how he had that moment where he turned to the Lord with an open heart. And in all these little ways that aren't miraculous by the telling, God revealed himself to him. And he does that when we turn to the Lord with a truly open heart. This is very much my own story over this past year. On one hand, I wanted to see Jesus in a fresh, new way with the eyes of my heart. But with the other hand, I was self-protecting and guarding my heart. And for as long as I was in a posture of self-protection, it didn't matter how much I wanted to see Jesus. But when I came to the end of my self-protective efforts and energies, and when I ran out of capacity to harden and safeguard my heart, when the outer crust on the outside broke open and the soft center was revealed. Suddenly the veil was lifted and I saw Jesus in fresh ways. And I would just say to you this morning, you don't need to self-protect from Jesus. You do not need to harden your heart to his love. Turn to him with an open and vulnerable heart and he will remove the veil and he will show you himself. Maybe not in a flash. Maybe not right in that moment. Maybe it will take time. Maybe there are some things that Jesus needs to arrange first. But be patient with yourself and be patient with him. Because when we turn to the Lord in sincerity and open-heartedness, he will remove the veil and show us the loving and glory, glorious countenance of his face. So that's the first sermon medallion. Soften your heart and turn to the Lord. Maybe that's a word someone in particular needed to hear here this morning, and the Lord didn't want us just to rush right past that. So there you go. All right, so here's the second sermon medallion. It's coming from chapter 4, 7 through 12. You can stand up here. Let's read that text together. Those we shepherd experience joy when we embrace cruciformity, all right? 4, 7 through 12. 
But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last week, Pastor Joel preached about how we are jars of clay that contain the glory and wonder and joy of Jesus. And that it's in our weakness and our suffering that God's power and glory is most readily made known. Because, of course, we can be joyful when we win a million dollars in the lotto. But then everyone around us just assumes that the source of joy that we have is coming from the money. But what about when we're joyful, even when we are persecuted or struck down or afflicted? Well, in that case, our joy must be coming from something else or from someone else. And that someone else is Jesus. He is the living personal, the living embodiment of joy that enables us to be, as Paul writes here, afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, dying daily, but, but not losing heart. As Pastor Joel noted, and Pastor Joel noted last week how the ministers of the gospel are uniquely appointed to model this joy to those that they are called to serve. And that's the truth I want to focus on here in this second sermon. Certainly as a minister of the gospel, Paul's life was marked by suffering and by affliction. You can read through the book of Acts. You can see all the ways that his life was marked by suffering and affliction. And we're going to see more of that as we continue on our way through 2 Corinthians. Paul's entire apostolic ministry was a ministry of cruciformity for the sake of his congregations in order to display to his congregations that the surpassing joy of life is found in the person of Jesus and not one's earthly circumstances. And every Christian is called to varying degrees to model joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. And as such, the life of every Christian will entail some measure of cruciformity for the sake of others so that the light of Jesus can shine through to others. This in many ways is the function of the church in the world. The church in the world bears up in joy in the midst of all the travails and trials of the world to testify to the fact that joy lies outside the world in God and has come into the world in the person of Christ and dwells in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So we testify to that collectively, but we also testify it too individually as well in our own little spheres. But a principal point of the logic that is undergirding Paul's comments here in chapter 4 and really all throughout 2 Corinthians is that the calling of joy in the midst of cruciformity lies most heavily on those who have been entrusted with shepherding and leadership responsibilities. And Paul knows, because he learned it from Jesus, that the truth of spiritual joy is more readily caught than taught. 
And he knows that the pastoral responsibility of a gospel minister is to lead his people into the truth of the gospel, not just with his teaching, but with his life as example. How did the Corinthians come to experience and to know and to see with the eyes of their heart the life-changing joy of Jesus that transcends earthly circumstances except through Paul's own lived experience of that joy that transcends earthly circumstances. His whole life was a living testimony to the truth that joy is a person whose name is Jesus and that you can have joy even when life is rotten. Now, the most obvious application of this truth, of course, today is for pastors. Pastors aren't the end-all, be-all of God's work in the world. But over the last 2,000 years, pastors have been appointed by Jesus as the means by which a community of faith comes to see and believe in the possibility of joy sourced in Jesus that transcends earthly circumstances. Now, we live in a more democratic age, more egalitarian spirited age that tends to downplay the importance of leadership or looks upon leadership with suspicion. And I get that because when leadership goes sour, people often end up getting hurt. So we live in an age that tends to stiff arm and self-protect and harden their heart, as it were, against leadership. But that only underscores the point and the power of leadership. Yes, it's true. If I go off the rails as your pastor, the damage that I could cause to this church is greater than if any one individual congregant shipwrecks their faith. But it's also true that if I, as your pastor, model a life of joy that transcends my circumstances, even if those circumstances lead me into moments of cruciformity for your sake, the good of my example has a far-reaching impact. Not because I'm better or more valuable in and of myself, but because pastors have been appointed by Jesus to lead the way in demonstrating a life of cruciformity that bears witness to a joy that transcends earthly circumstances. But here's the thing. This is why Paul, I think, is keen to make this point, because this truth isn't just for pastors. All of us at various points in our lives will be entrusted with shepherding responsibilities for the sake of others. To become a Christian is at some point in your Christian journey to be given shepherding responsibilities for the sake of others. And anyone who bears shepherding responsibility for others is likewise called to endure difficult circumstances with joy as a testimony to those they have been called to serve. So maybe you find yourself with such a calling today, whether as a parent called to serve your children or a husband called to serve your wife or a small group leader called to serve your small group members or perhaps a youth group leader called to serve your students or on and on it goes. If you've been given a God-given position of responsibility to shepherd and to care for others, a primary part of that calling is to bear witness to the joy of Jesus in the face of difficult circumstances for the sake of those you have been called to serve. 
so that they can learn to and experience the joy that transcends circumstances, so that they can pass it on to others. It's the golden chain of comfort and joy that Paul speaks of in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. God comforts us, Paul says, as apostles in our affliction so that we can comfort you in your affliction, so that you can comfort others in their affliction. And on and on it goes until the world, the whole world is awash in the comfort of God. This is the goal of the gospel. But maybe you're a tired mom or dad this morning, or a tired small group leader, or a tired husband, or a tired pastor, and you don't have the joy that you know that you should have. And hearing that your lack of joy is potentially robbing those that you've been entrusted to care for from growing in joy themselves only makes it more difficult for you to experience and find joy in Jesus. And it all ends up just being a reminder of your inability and your failure. And I get that. Believe me, as a pastor, I think about these things a lot, and I get that. The responsibility to bear witness to the joy of Jesus that transcends circumstances is a weighty responsibility, especially and all the more so because we are not capable of simply manufacturing joy at will. We can't just wake up and be like, I will have joy today. Because joy is a gift that comes to us when we experience and see Jesus. So if you find yourself deficit in joy today, but knowing you have a shepherding responsibility that, that need to see in you the joy that you're having a hard time finding, don't despair. Let me instead point you back to our first sermon this morning. We will experience the joy of Jesus when we stop self-protecting from Jesus. When we soften our hearts to him, and allow him to come into our lives. Now that's harder than it sounds. And I think a primary reason that we don't want to let Jesus in is precisely because we see his own cruciformity. We see his cross and we see his suffering and we know that he wants to make us like himself. And we don't want his cross. And we don't want his suffering. And we don't really want to become like him. And so we find ourselves reaching out for him with one hand and self-protecting from him with the other. But again, I would say to you, we don't need to self-protect from Jesus. Yes, he will give us our respective crosses, we each have our own unique cross to bear. This is part of the calling of what it means to be a Christian. He says, come, follow me. Take up your cross. He's got a cross for each one of us. But in giving us our crosses, he's giving us himself. We're going to get our crosses either way. We can't escape crosses in this world. This world is full of affliction and suffering and crosses. We're going to get our crosses either way, with him or without him. But how much better to suffer 
with the joy of Jesus than to suffer alone with the despair of the world. Jesus hands us our crosses not to punish us or to needlessly harm us, but because our crosses, our sufferings, and our afflictions and our trials are the medicine by which our souls are healed and made whole. And it's in our crosses that we come to know the joy that transcends our crosses and all earthly circumstances. No one willingly chooses their cross or happily chooses their cross. Not Paul, not even Jesus. Do you remember when the Father was handing Jesus his cross in the garden? Jesus didn't want it, and he prayed that it might be taken from him. But it wasn't, and so he surrendered himself to his Father's will, and he found the joy that came through obedience. No one who has embraced their cross in faith and has come to know the joy of the Lord, would ever trade the joy that they have found in Jesus for a life without the cross. Because Jesus is greater and richer and deeper than all of our sufferings and afflictions. So if you have shepherding responsibilities this morning, you know that you've been called to model the joy of Jesus to those that you've been called to care for, but you're having a hard time coming up with the joy, then soften your heart and yield to the, to the love of Christ. Turn to the Lord. Let him take the veil away and show you himself and his glory and his love. Let him fill you with joy so that you can be a testimony of joy to those you have been called to serve. All right, so that was our second sermon medallion. And now we come to our third, which is this. We grow in the glory of Jesus because of our afflictions. Verses 16 through 18. Let's stand together and read verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The word of the Lord. In verse 16, Paul gives us some bad news and some good news. The bad news is that our elder, outer self is wasting away. But the good news is that our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, if we stopped at verse 16, we might think that Paul's principal point is that the weight of the good news is greater than the weight of the bad news. Sort of like, well, the bad news is that I lost the transmission in my car yesterday, but I also got engaged to the love of my life. And since engagement is more glorious and happier than the bad news of losing my transmission, in the end, everything works out on the positive plus side. But that's not how Paul is thinking of it. Look at verse 17. Paul tells us that our light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that far surpasses our afflictions. And I want us to note that word, preparing. Paul is saying that the bad stuff, the sufferings and the afflictions, are the very things that make possible the eternal weight of glory. We can't have the eternal weight of glory without the light and momentary afflictions. It's not just that we have bad stuff 
and we have good stuff, but the good stuff outweighs the bad stuff. You get suffering on earth, but you get glory in heaven. Glory in heaven is better than suffering on earth, so be happy. It's that the glory of heaven is made possible by the sufferings and the afflictions and the problems and difficulties of life here on earth. Because it's uniquely, not only or exclusively, but uniquely in our sufferings and afflictions that we come to experience and see with our own eyes the sufficiency, the all-sufficiency and glory and joy of Jesus. Now, instead of me preaching this last sermon all by myself, I want to invite PJ Dooling to come up here, and she's going to share her testimony, which is a living illustration of the very thing that we're talking about. Many of you know PJ. She's been around Calvary for a while, and uh, PJ's written out her testimony. And so we're going to have, uh, have you read your testimony for us. We'll make a few comments together, and we'll keep moving on. So please, please share. Good morning. Second um, Corinthians 4, 5 through 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Many of you know that in December of 2021, I experienced excruciating pain and was diagnosed with stage four diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, cancer. Our entire family was shocked that the word cancer would touch our lives like this diagnosis did. In a matter of three days, our well-known normal was crazily turned upside down. My son brought me home a brand new pink walker, and my daughter Meg found a wheelchair that fit me just perfectly. Words like white cell count, infusion, and chemo port became everyday vocabulary. There were two weeks in February when my husband's morning coffee, just the aroma, so nauseated me, he had to drink it across the room at a different table. I wanted to speak this morning to thank all of you who provided nourishment for us. You nourished our physical bodies, providing six straight months of delicious meals. But most of all, you nourished us spiritually. You prayed for healing, courage, and literally my life. John Owen, a Puritan theologian, once said, Christ is the meat, the bread, the food of our souls. Nothing is in him of higher spiritual nourishment than his love. Oh, my Calvary, how you showered us with your nourishing love. I'm going to tell you a verse, and I'm going to readily admit I'm using it just slightly out of context. Job 24, 5. The wilderness yieldeth fruit or food from them, for them and their children. I have learned that nothing produces pure fruit in my life than the wilderness. I came to a point during my illness where I needed to learn how this bad stuff could teach me to trust Christ in my struggle. Many tears were shed and many sighs deeply moaned. But in the end, the wilderness yielded beautiful fruit in my life. God was in the wilderness, providing not a roadmap, but his presence and love. 
just like Pastor Gerald talked about two years ago. Every two and a half weeks, I was admitted to Northwestern for five days straight of 24-hour chemo. I also received chemo epidurals where they withdrew my spinal fluid and replaced it with chemo up my spine to bathe my brain. The days weren't too bad, but the nights were sleepless and long, filled with buzzers and beeps and alarms. During my third chemo session, after a sleepless night, it was about 5 a.m. Saturday morning. I was listening to a YouTube recording of continuous scriptures being read regarding physical healing. My eyes were closed, and I was praying along with the scriptures. I'm sorry, but my chemo has left me with a really bad tremor in my right hand. <laughs> when I gradually opened my eyes on my right and left, I saw two white angels lifting something like a covering off of me, small and quickly vanishing from my bedside. They left me astounded and awestruck. Seriously, angels? <laughs> I was shaken and honestly did a mental status check on myself. I knew where I was. I knew why I was there. I recognized my chemo pole. I knew my name. And I knew the scene out my window. The angels were real and incredibly magnificent. Two weeks ago, Pastor Gerald said, in the midst of it not going well, the presence of Jesus makes it okay. His words resonated with me as I recalled the awesome presence of those angels that dark Saturday morning. He gave me himself in the midst of the wilderness, a promise of eternal glory. One week later, I had my mid-chemo PET scan. Unlike my pre-chemo PET scan, which showed black cancer throughout all my bones and body, stress fractures in my pelvis, and large lesion on my hip. This PET scan was as white as snow, not a single dark spot. I was declared cancer-free and in remission. I still had three rounds of chemo to go, but that day of angels lifted many of our burdens. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pain. Oh, I, oh, how I love the shouting or whispering or speaking voice of my Savior. So we do not lose heart. No matter the survival rate, we are faithfully being renewed day by day, eagerly anticipating an eternal weight of glory. The good stuff really is prepared for us by the bad stuff. As Gerald said, it's uniquely in our sufferings and afflictions that we come to see with our own eyes the glory and joy of Jesus. I love your voice. You have led me through the fire. In the darkest night, you are close like no other. I've known you as a father. I've known you as a friend. I have lived in the goodness of God. In all my life, you have been faithful. In all my life, you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. Amen. And uh, 
we were reflecting on that I was preaching the Joy Sermon series back when you were having uh, your chemo. So you weren't able to be with us uh, in, this, in the services. But I would call and check on you, and I was always so moved by the fact that you, you, you were continuing in a posture of joy. And uh, it's not to romanticize chemo or to make it sound like you never had bad days, right? But, but if you had a chance to talk with PJ during that time of chemo, before seeing angels and after seeing angels, what was so remarkable about the grace of God in PJ's life was her capacity to have joy in the midst of all of it. And we were talking like this, this isn't a, a testimony about look how God has healed you and that's why you have joy, right? That's not what this testimony is about. This testimony is about how God has met you in the midst of your suffering and he himself is the joy. So just say a quick word about that. What's your prognosis in the future? And, and uh, yeah. So uh, my prognosis, um, I, I go for two years, I go every three months for checkups. And then for, for three years after that, I go every six months. And uh, the prognosis is 65% of people survive um, for five years after what I've had. So that's good. So that's good. <laughs> the cup right? is half full. <laughs> that, that's right. There, there, there you go. Right. But the, the reality is, right, is that you're going to die. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to die. And you're all going to die. Right? We're all going to die. The, the joy of Jesus is not that we're somehow spared from suffering or that we're spared from affliction. The joy of Jesus is that no matter what happens, because the bad will happen, we still have joy in the midst of it. And such a testimony. We thank you for that. And you asked, you read from us, I read for us the words from The Goodness of God, which is one of your, your favorite songs. And you asked, PJ asked if, uh, when she gave her testimony, if we could sing the song. So we're going to close the service with that song. So I'm going to pray for us. The band's going to come up. And we're going to sing about the goodness of God in our lives, no matter what's happening in our lives. Father, thank you for PJ. And thank you that you meet us in our afflictions. And you uniquely reveal yourself to us. And I pray that you would help us to trust you and that when you call us into places that are hard, that you would fill us up with enough of your love to follow you into those places obediently and to experience the full riches of your glory in the face of Christ. Thank you that PJ has a testimony of that. I know many of us do as well. I pray that if there are any here this morning, Lord, that they too would be swept up in the joy of Jesus that they have heard in PJ's testimony. God, we thank you that we live in your goodness because of Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen.